All right, open up to Psalm 96, Psalm 96. I entitled the psalm, Sing to the Lord, because that's pretty much what the, the psalm is about. And in most of the verses in this short psalm, we read the name, the words, all nations or all peoples. And in that respect, it fits in with Psalm 65 and Psalm 66. And it's a psalm of praise to God for all of his blessings. In addition to being a prayer to God that his blessings will flow out and and reach the Gentiles. That is those that don't know the Lord, especially his salvation. And that's what we want. That's what our whole focus is, is is seeing people saved, getting the word out to see them uh, experience salvation. This was part of God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Now, what is a blessing? How would you define a blessing? Well, a blessing is a gift from God that glorifies his name, helps his people, and through his people, reaches out to help others who will glorify his name. Now, God blesses us. So that we might be a blessing to others. And you know what? God, God will do that in, in various ways. And, and I've told this story before, but I think it's been a while. And maybe not all of you heard it. But it's, I think it's a great example. It taught me this lesson. That one time when I was at Golden Springs, you know, a, um, a man that I knew uh, came up and he, he gave me a check for $500. And I go, what's this for? He says, I don't know. He said, God just told me to give it to you. And I go, well, you know, I, I, I don't need it. I appreciate it. I don't need it. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And God's taking it. He says, do it with it. Do with it what you want. I'm just doing what God told me. I'm giving it to you. So I said, okay. You know, I was all excited. And I'm thinking, what am I going to spend this on? You know, and, and I, you know, I know that I can find something and find something that I'm going to enjoy and, you know, just pamper myself and, and I'm trying to think, what, what could I buy? What, what, do I, what do I want? And then God quietly just said, you know, you really don't need it. You really don't need anything. Why don't you just hold on to it? And that was a smart thing to do. I, I'll probably come up with a need. So maybe something's coming up down the road I don't know about, and I'm going to need this money. So I held on to it, and um, about a month passed by, and I still hadn't spent this money. And one day uh, at Golden Springs, uh, a person came up to me and, and said, Pastor Joe, would, would you pray for me? He says, I, I, need, I need rent money. I, I'm low on my rent money. And I, I go, well, how much do you need? And I, hadn't even, I wasn't even thinking about the check. She, goes, she said, well, I need $500. And that's what the guy gave me that check for. And I go, no problem. Um, we, have, I, we have it for you. And uh, it was for that lady a month later who was going to be in need of that money. So God blessed me that I might bless somebody else. And, you know, I, I, we need to, you know, it, it's to get into that mode of thinking, you know, that, that God knows, you know, the lives of people and their needs. And, uh, you know, and I was so blessed, much more blessed by being able to help this person rather than I would have been blessed buying me something that, that I really didn't need. So, again, God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. And again, he, he may do that in other ways. This is another of the royal psalms. It's a part of the set that starts with Psalm 93. 
And this psalm emphasizes world mission. That is reaching out to others with the gospel. Reaching out to those who aren't saved. We have a, a world of unsaved people. Specifically the prophetic fulfillment of the mission command of the Abraham covenant. That God said, I will make you into a great nation. Psalm 67 says, may your ways be known throughout the earth. Your saving power among people everywhere. Now the structure of the psalm goes like this. First, a call to praise God in verses 1 through 3. Second, a celebration of God the Creator in verses 4 through 6. And third, a celebration of God the King in verses 7 through 10. And fourth, a celebration of God the Coming One in verses 11 through 13. The theme of the psalm is how to praise God. We can sing about Him. We can tell others about Him. We can give Him glory. And we can bring offerings to Him and live holy lives. The author, we don't know for sure. It could be David. Because this psalm closely resembles David's song of praise in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16. There must have been many exciting and joyful moments in King David's lifetime. But to judge from all, of, all, all that's written about King David, the brightest time of his life, the brightest time of all, must have been when the ark of God was brought back to Jerusalem from its temporary resting place in the house of Obed-Edom. Thousands of people were gathered together for that occasion. They were led by hundreds of priests, all dressed up in white linen. There were choirs and there was an orchestra. And when the priests took off with the ark to take it back to Jerusalem, they began their journey, uh, they began their march. It was made known by blowing the ram's horns and trumpets the clash of cymbals, the happy strumming of many hearts and lyres. Now, a lyre was a U-shaped stringed instrument. David was so overjoyed that he didn't care what anybody thought. And he just said, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks. And he threw modesty aside and he danced before the Lord in front of the people. He also wrote a psalm for the occasion. It's found in 1 Chronicles 16, again, when they placed the ark inside the temple. The middle verses of that psalm, verses 22 and tw- uh, through 33, are also here in Psalm 96. Other parts of it are in Psalm 105, 1 through 15, and Psalm 106, um, verse 1 and verses 47 through 48. But not all commentators agree that David wrote this psalm. But because of this psalm, it has similarities of other psalms that David wrote. Similarities... Uh, to parts of uh, Isaiah. And it's possible that the writer of Chronicles also used some of the Psalms that were written later to express the type of praise that David must have offered to God on this special occasion. You know, but it doesn't matter who wrote this Psalm. The important thing is that it's a joyful song to the Lord God of Israel as king. And it's an invitation to the nations of the world to join Israel in praising God. It's also a prophecy about a future day when God is going to judge the whole world in his righteousness. Now, what it means is that the ark of God coming to Jerusalem was seen by David as a promise of God to rule as king over all the earth in the future. The psalm starts with a threefold invitation to the Lord's people to sing. God wants his people to be happy. We don't have a gloomy God. We shouldn't be a gloomy people. We have a glorious God who fills all of heaven with songs of praise. 
He would want us to tune our instruments and to sing praises to him. He would want us to join in with the heavens choirs and to sing a joyful song. Now, what should we sing? Well, let's see in verses one and two. Oh, sing to the Lord. What a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation. Notice from day to day. We should be singing a new song. Now, the call to sing a new song is actually a call to sing about some new thing that God himself has done. It's to be a new quality or a freshness in the things of God. His mercies are new every morning. And the word says he heaps upon us blessings every single day. In First Chronicles, where the words of the psalm appear for the first time, The new thing was God's coming to Jerusalem, symbolized by the moving of the ark there. From this time forward, God was to be especially honored there in Jerusalem, which is what the psalm does here. It was also expected that God would now rule over his people as well as the Gentile nations, that he would do it from Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. When we read about a new song today, We should also remember when we were in Revelation, the new song in Revelation chapter 5. Remember there we were told about four living creatures and 24 elders who fell down before God's Lamb and they were singing a new song. And here's the new song. It says, they were saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. Listen, many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. This was the praise song in heaven. You know, it's just going to be one big you know, praise concert, if you will. The new thing here is Christ's atonement. And the new song is a joyful acknowledgement of his atonement. The second thing that we see here is the way they declared the glory of God among the nations after praising him. Notice verse two, it says, proclaim the good news of the salvation of his salvation day to day. Tell the good news about about his salvation every single day. This psalm teaches that worship should never be something that we keep to ourselves. Something that we keep just between ourselves and God. But it should also be something that leads us to telling other people. You see, if this was the only verse, here verse 2 was the only verse in the Bible that teaches about our responsibility to the lost in, in heathen lands, this one verse would be enough. You know, think about it. How can we... How can you and I sit and enjoy the wonderful good news of the gospel and all that Jesus has done? You know, we've been saved, we've been restored, we've been forgiven, born from above, we're on our way to heaven. 
With all of that blessing, how could we be happy just to sit in our pews Sunday after Sunday and sing our songs when millions of people are lost in darkness and they're going to die one day in that darkness without even knowing one verse of Scripture? When millions of people live and die in darkness and disease and they're, 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 they're entangled, they're caught up in a delusion and in deception... How in the world can we the, the, you know, ignore the evangelical suggestions of the faith that is proclaiming here in the gospel? This is a necessary song that this, this, this psalm tells us. It's to be taught to all the people of the earth who don't know the Lord or who haven't heard of him. Now, in the millennial kingdom, the knowledge of the true and living God is. It's going to be taught during that time. It's going to be taught to all the tribes of the earth. And it's going to be the first and foremost order of business on that day. In that day. Teaching about Jesus Christ. Did you know that today God holds us, you and I, right here and every believer. He holds you and me accountable for the people who have never been told the good news. Did you know that? Listen to what God said to Ezekiel. He said in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Son of man, I have appointed you, notice, as a watchman for Israel. And whenever you receive a message from me, warn the people immediately. No, it's not later. Immediately. He says, if I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you, Ezekiel, fail to deliver that warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their death. This is a heavy statement. But if you warn them and they refuse to repent and they keep on sinning, they will die in their sins. But you will have saved yourself because you obeyed me. You did what you were called to do. And if the righteous, here's a very important verse as well. And if the righteous turns back from living righteously and takes up with evil and you refuse to warn him of the consequences and the Lord destroys him, His previous good deeds won't help him and he shall die in his sins. And none of their righteous acts will be remembered. And I will hold you, Ezekiel, responsible for their deaths. But if you, Ezekiel, warn righteous people not to sin and they listen to you and do not sin, they will live and you will have saved yourself too. Ezekiel 3, 17 through 21. This last part uh, verse is important here. Because it's speaking to the righteous. And it says, if the righteous turn away from their righteousness. He says, says, all of the righteousness they've done in their previous days or months or years, it's not going to account for anything. You see, we are to continue to live a righteous life until the day we die. And And again, we know there are those who believe once saved, always saved. But Ezekiel here makes that very clear. That's not the fact. Those who lived a righteous life and turned away from their righteousness will die in their sins. He says, and the righteousness that they lived all before that, it will count for nothing. You see, our righteousness is in Christ. And we have no security outside of Christ. It's all about Christ and what he's done for us. We should never be satisfied to worship God alone. G. Camel Morgan said this, if the song of the Lord begins in the heart, it always grows into the chorus in which others are included in its music. Verse three. 
the psalmist says, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. The psalmist says here, tell everyone about God's glorious deeds. He says, tell everybody about the amazing things that God does. Why? The people in the world need to know that all glory belongs to God. Verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So among the nations, here in verse 4, or in verse 3, among the nations is a bold declaration that one day the message of God's mercy will be known to the world all over. They're going to know it all over the world. One day the message of God's salvation will be known, it says, notice, among all the peoples. Now, in verse 4, for, for the Lord is greatly to be, pray, uh, be praised and He is to be feared above all gods. Among the nations is a bold declaration that one day the message of God will be made, like I said, all over the world. And that the message of God will be known to all people. This declaration depends on God's promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It also anticipates Jesus' command to his disciples in Matthew 28, uh, uh, 28 um, 18 through 20. It says, again, to again, preach the gospel to every creature to spread the news of God's goodness to a desperate world. Now, why should we sing? Because the Lord is great. That's why he should be greatly praised. He's to be feared, that is reverenced as well, above all gods. Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, the better we get to know God, the more we'll love Him. But a healthy fear, that is a healthy reverence of the Lord is where it all starts. And and, and reverence today for God is sorely lacking. That's why the very first work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart is the work of conviction. Jesus said in John 16, 8, when the Holy Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now the heathen fears their false gods. The heathen fears their false gods. They bow and they scrape to those gods. But they do it in hopeless terror. You know, and they should because the false gods, the false gods were gruesome. And they were disgusting. And they they called for things that God would never even think of calling for. The Lord doesn't want that for us. He He doesn't want us to bow and to scrape. He doesn't want us to, 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 be, to be fearful in terror. You see, he wants respect that comes naturally because of a sensible knowledge of his wisdom and love and power. He wants us to use our minds to know who he is and what he's like, to know his character and his attributes. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. We all know that an idol is not really a God and that there's only one God. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth. And some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything and we live for Him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10, 19-3, Paul said this in in relation to what he had just said. What am I trying to say, Paul said? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? 
He said, no, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons. That's what false gods are. That's what idols are. They are demons. They're not made to God. He says, and I don't want you to participate with demons. Verse 5. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And here's the fact. Paul says the fact is, the, uh, the, uh, the psalmist said, the gods of other nations, they're nothing but idols. He says, it's the Lord who made the heavens. The word the psalmist uses for gods, it comes from or originates from the usual word for God, L, capital E-L. But it employs the negative participle. So the word literally means good for nothing. <laughs> That's what he's talking about, the, God, the gods, the heathens, gods, the idols. They're good for nothing. So the gods of the nations are good for nothing. They're nothings. They're nobodies, Paul says. They're really non-existent except in the enslaved minds of those who worship them. In contrast, the psalmist said, the Lord made the heavens. This is the motive for singing. We are in touch with reality. We're in touch with the true and the living God. We're in touch with the God whose omnipotent power created the heavens themselves, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. Verse 6. He goes on to say, Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. We should sing because of the glory that belongs to our Lord. Our song should be so that it's heard everywhere to all the ends of the earth until every man everywhere praises God. And now the, the psalmist changes his subject. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now, back in these ancient times, when, when a subject would approach his sovereign, he would bring him a present. And he'd bring that present to him as a token of his submission. Now think of it. How can we do anything else less, anything less for our Lord Jesus? The first, the first thing that God wants from us is the glory due to his name. He wants us to acknowledge Him for what He is. That comes first. And as I said a while back when we were going through the, the psalmist, start or continue underlining every time you see His name. Because you will see His name mentioned over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation, but specifically in the psalm, which speaks about who He is, His character, His attributes, His holiness, His reputation. That's what His name represents. So again... Now, the first thing God wants from us is the glory that's due his name because of who he is. He wants us to acknowledge him for what he is. And again, that's what should be first. Now, when the Jews praise the Lord, they would lift up their hands and their voices and they would look up. But in their worship of him, they would reverently bow down. We see that in Psalm 95, verse 6. This invitation here went out to all the nation to come to God's sanctuary and bring a sacrifice and to worship him. Just as a Jewish priest had to dress in the garments required by the Lord in Exodus 28, so do God's people. They must worship him with clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm 24, 4, and experience cleansing from the Lord before they worship him. 
You know, when we come into worship and into his house, we need to come in with pure heart and clean hands. You know, it's a contradiction to come in with a, with a, a, a dirty heart and, and dirty hands and then, you know, lift them in praise to the Lord. In Hebrews 10, 19-25, we read, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The only beauty that God accepts, verse 9 here, the beauty of holiness. That's beautiful to God. Holiness. And the righteousness of Christ is is credited to us by faith in Him. It's His righteousness that enables us to approach a holy God. And the righteousness that we live as we obey Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way we can approach God is through Christ's righteousness. But we please God when we are obedient children. The second part of verse 8. Notice what it says. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Giving. It's a part of the life of faith. God expects us to honor Him with our substance. With sacrificial offerings. It's not because He needs it. But it's because He graciously makes it possible for us to show in a physical way something of the, of the thankfulness in our hearts to Him. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they were required by the law to bring sacrifices and offerings. They were also expected to to bring a tithe of all that they had. Now, the tithe was a form of a religious tax. It was a mandatory 10% of all of their income, and it was required by the law, and that was to support the work of the priests and the Levites. And the tithe given by the law isn't one of the principles, though, that govern the church today. The tithe doesn't govern the church today. It's, it, it, Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 that it's based on proportionate giving. In other words, God expects us today to give based on what we have, based on what He's given us. According, Paul said, as the Lord has prospered. It's in proportion to what we have. And you know, we definitely shouldn't give less under the grace uh, which was demanded under the law. Okay, Uh, we're under grace. And we should be able to give more, again, based on what God has given us and compared to what was demanded under the law. You know, 10% to somebody who makes millions of dollars a year, that's nothing. Okay, we should be able to to, to give God more than that. But again, that's what's needed. It's in proportion to what God has given me. So 10% to one person, it could be a lot of their income. 10% to somebody else, be nothing, a drop in the bucket. But again, it should be something that's in, in our hearts because of God's grace and God's love and his redemption to us. So we should you know, probably give a lot more than we do. And we need to remember that under the law, a tenth was required plus sacrifices and offerings of different kinds. Look at verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Inside the temple and the tabernacle, The holy place and the holy of holies was beautiful. The inner walls of the tabernacle were covered with beautiful reds and blues and purples. The veil was the same. And all the furnishings and all the fittings were of shining gold. The place was a holy and beautiful place. And you know what? That's the way God planned it. 
The priest in the holy place worshipped in the beauty of holiness. God purposely joined the two thoughts together, beauty and holiness. True holiness will always produce beauty. If we are walking holy lives, our lives will be beautiful lives. We will be a witness to the world around us. Now, we've all met people whose personal holiness of life has resulted in in just a whole transformation of even their very countenance, the way they look, the way they talk, the way they carry themselves. That beauty of holiness will transfigure that person. Look at verses 10 through 13 now. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It it shall not be moved. He shall judge the, the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Notice three times there in in verse 11. It says, well, we see let the heavens rejoice. And then right below that, let the sea roar. In verse 12, let the field be joyful. We have these three times the Holy Spirit urging us to let, 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 to do something. And when the Holy Spirit in His omnipotent power is behind such urgings as this, that means there's no power on earth or in the heavens or in hell itself that can stop it from taking place. This is probably what Paul had in mind with the assurance Uh, When when he speaks uh, in Romans 8 about the whole creation of believers groaning. Waiting for an enthusiastic hope for that day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. When we will receive redemption in our fullest when when we die. When we're with him. In verse 13 it says, For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. So many times, you know, when we think about the Lord's coming, and you know, when you read Revelation, well, it, it kind of, you kind of think about that. But when we think about the Lord's coming, we think a lot of times of it uh, as nothing but fear and terror and judgment. Now, there will be some of that. You know, Revelation makes that clear. But the, the, the final result of the Lord's coming will result in joy and gladness. The main idea behind the word judgment Here is not punishment, but peace and praise and perfect government. So while the day is still on its way, the psalmist says, let him establish that kind of government in our hearts and in our lives today. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. The Lord reigns. And the Lord reigns is the key phrase of the royal psalms. It was the opposite cry of ancient Israelites in a world that believed that gods could rise and fall in comparison to the living God who remains for all eternity. They thought, you know, the the gods of the world, they they fell and they they rose and, and fell as, you know, all the time. In comparison to our living God, he remains ruler for all eternity. He reigns. He rules. He shall judge, it says. And he shall judge answers the cry of the oppressed peoples of the world history. God is going to one day restore justice for all. The Lord reigns could also be translated, the Lord has become king. We see that in Revelation eleven seventeen, referring to the day that Jesus will sit on David's throne and rule over the nations. 
Only then will there be true justice on the earth. And it says there, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now we see three principles here of the coming millennium, this time that that the, the psalmist talks about. The Lord reigns. There will be absolute sovereignty at this time. Notice it says, say among the nations or the heathens, the Lord reigns. God's ideal government is not a democratic or republican form of government. Uh, somebody sent me a, a text message. Uh, you know, a lot of times you see on the message boards at churches. On this message board at a, ch- at a church, it said, America, the donkey and the elephant won't help. We must get back to the lamb. How right on that is. He is going to be the ruler of the world. And he's going to rule with justice and with judgment. It's not the government of the people It's not the government by the people. It's not the government for the people. It's an absolute kingdom with all power put into the capable hands of God's dear son, Jesus Christ. When that day comes, that's when we'll have true peace in the land and true justice. An undivided rule or an absolute authority by a single person. That's what we're going to have with Jesus Christ. That's the first principle. Second thing that we see here is absolute security. Notice it says that the world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. There won't be any more wars. There won't be any rebellions. There will be no crime organizations flourishing in the underworld. It will be a reign of justice, a reign of holiness, impartiality, and universal law for everybody. And the foundations of society during the millennial kingdom, they will be so secure that nothing will be able to challenge them. Satan will be bound The saints will be reigning with Christ. Sinners will not be able to express their disruptive desires and their lusts. And thirdly, there will be absolute holiness. It says, he shall judge the peoples righteously. There will not be any corruption of the legal process. There will be no partiality, no injustice, no biased laws. These are the principles of God's government. Then in 11 through 13 again, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Today, creation, the world is in bondage to corruption because of sin and hopelessness because of Adam's sin. But when the children of God are fully, again, redeemed, when we've experienced full redemption, when Jesus returns, creation will also be set free from that corruption. So it isn't, it's no wonder that the psalmist described the joy of heaven and earth, the seas and the dry land. Even the trees here of the earth as they welcome their creator. And then there will be true justice on the earth. And, and this was also what, but probably what Paul was thinking when he said in Romans 8, 19, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now, the second part of verse 13, it says, he shall judge the world with righteousness and his people, peoples with his truth. So this great psalm hits its highest point here. When we think of the Lord's coming in judgment, Again, we often imagine it as a day of nothing but terror. And there will be, again, you know, plenty of terror to go around. But again, the goal of it all is gladness. Now, the main thought, like I said, behind the word isn't judgment, but peace and perfect government. 
So again, as I said before, while we're still waiting for that day to come, you know, let's, let's get that, that idea of, of that government in our hearts and in our lives to, to, to again wait upon the Lord for His coming with that, 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 I mean, the rule of, of, of judgment, of, of righteous judgment and of peace. And again, of, of getting the Word of God out to, to a land and to a people that don't know Him. Father, we come before You and we thank You so much for Your Word, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your abundant mercies, God. That, Father, you, your mercies endure forever. And, Lord, we thank you that you have saved us, Lord. We thank you that you have left us your word. Father, you haven't left your children here in this, in this world to, to, to reach out in darkness, Lord, and try to feel their way around. God, you've given us signposts. You've given us guidance. You've given us direction through your word, God. And Lord, may we seek to know your way, God, because we know, (coughs) excuse me, know your word says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is death. And Lord, there are so many of those roads today, God, where they all lead in death, Father. Lord, we need to be on your road, that narrow road, the path to righteousness, the path to glory. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for all that you've done for us, for all that you're doing for us, and all that you're going to do, God. And Lord, help us to stay on track. Help us to not go to the left or to the right, Father. Help us to put on those blinders. Help us to gaze upon Jesus and may he be the only one that we see. Looking unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord. So, Father, we thank you and I pray you would bless your people, Lord. And and God, that you would have your way with us, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody looks familiar, so that's why I didn't have an altar call. But if you need prayer, you want to receive the Lord.